Welcome to Speaking Highly with John Huck. I am John Huck. With me, until he decides to get a job, Indy Fawcett. Uh, how are you, buddy? I'm well. I am currently employed. Uh, I know, I, I know. I, I, I thought about, as soon as I said that, I was like, that's mean. First of all, mean, like... If you weren't if you weren't working right now, I'd be like, "Hey, Dick, why?" I'm actually so blessed that uh, I get to do my job from home and do this and uh, pull my hair out doing podcasts. I was gonna say, yeah, you're blessed, dude. <laughs> it's uh, definitely blessed. But yes, it's uh, a, it's it's good to be podcasting again for sure. Nah, I'm I, I'm glad you're with us. Uh, I'm glad to be here, Same. and I'm glad whoever's watching and listening is here. Guys, don't forget, today don't don't forget to subscribe and hit that like button, y'all. Oh, we, we yeah, need to, do, we need you more should, than ever, really, should, because should we're be, we're at the beginning. We need we need yeah. them viewers, you know. Should we? Yeah, should I be saying that? Like, I, I can't bring myself to say smash that like button. Um, I can't. <laughs> no, it's just it, it, like literally, I forget to do it. So whenever I hear somebody say it, I click like. Are all subscribed, so you don't have That's to be annoying like annoying hey, that it works. Hey everybody, <laughs> out here, fucking, you know, making videos, subscribe. You know, it's just like, hey guys, just remember, this train doesn't move without you. You know, like that kind of thing, and go like, we're grassroots. We only have a couple hundred subscribers, few hundred subscribers. Like, any any added subscribers and listenerships, to, or, or also say this too. Tell a friend about the show if you like it. So you just say subscribe. If you like it, like the video, and if you if you know anybody who likes this, share it. Yeah. So, well, we can do that. So, go ahead. Yeah. So, don't forget to do all, all the things Andy just said. <laughs> like, subscribe, tell a friend, y'all. This is Speaking smash, with John Smash Huck. buttons. It's the hit new sensation of 2021. The hit new sensation. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, today, guys, I wanted to do, I was thinking about doing a whole episode on music festivals. And then that seemed too broad for me, and I narrowed it down. Um, I narrowed it down to, to, well, I guess just I narrowed it down to sort of one music festival. But music festivals, everybody knows about them. Everyone knows what they are. They're super common today because money, because they make yeah. money. Um, early music festivals that you would have heard of, um, you know, they were put on, like, if you think about Monterey Pop was like one of the first kind of big 1967 was like, let's put all these bands in one thing. Now, I, I consider a festival something that is yearly. It's annually. It happens every year. But Monterey Pop was a one-off. They did this festival. Everybody lost their shirts financially. The band, nobody made any money. And, and for back then, no one really cared because two years later, they did Woodstock. And Woodstock... People crashed, right? Not a lot of money. Like I just had to Google Monterey Pop. I you don't have to Google Woodstock. No, <laughs> you know that's Woodstock. true. You know Woodstock, and it's famous unless you're like thirteen. Just, <laughs> yeah. Even then, I got to. Even think, then, maybe, you, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, dude. But there's just you know people. People flocked to Woodstock. They didn't pay to get in. Nobody really made any money. But the people who were in charge of the music industry. The people who, you know, usually the gatekeepers are the people who can't and who right. don't really understand what's going on. But they, it was like they saw Woodstock and then I think I think that's when things changed. It was like, oh, if we charged all these people, if they each paid $10 a head, you know what I mean? It was right. it became, well, it be if we had advertisers, if we had people giving money. It became Coachella-fied, right? Like Dude. Nowadays where it's like it's all the people who wouldn't have gone 
pre all this commercialism, but now go because it's an opportunity to roll balls. And you know, <laughs> in 2016, Coachella made $94.2 million. Jeez. And that is when they stopped. They, they haven't toured Coachella. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Lollapalooza. Coachella mm. is one space every year. $94.2 million. I mean, that's it's. you've gone from Woodstock, where everyone walks in for free, to this festival made $94.2 million five years ago or whatever, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, it's like a license a lot. to print money rather than like, you know, a, and like the lineups are good and all. It's just like, and you know, it's all pop though. It's known like the cult, like the culture mo- moving forward of culture in a, like, like back then, like with Woodstock, you know, it's like, it was a cultural movement that yeah. just s- was, was a snapshot in time. You know, I, I think, I think Lollapalooza was like that when it first started, uh, meaning being yeah. a, a cultural movement. It was, um, it, it highlighted multiple bands from different uh, genres, you know, right. and it kind of, you know, you'd get your, your the hip hop stage and you'd get the rock and roll. Like I went to only one Lollapalooza, 1992. Oh. So was I was a negative year before. One. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> um, yeah, I I remember thinking, man, I can't wait till Indy's born. He's really gonna like music. <laughs> can't wait till uh, twenty seven years <laughs> after this dude, to talk about it on a podcast. Ninety two went to Lollapalooza two was the second one they had. So the headliner was Red Hot Chili Peppers. I oh. saw Ice Cube. I saw Pearl Jam play in during the day, and then Ministry played right before the Chili wow. Peppers. And Ministry was whew, that's probably the last massive mosh pit I ever went into and uh, I'm done now for moshing but um, it was it was a it was just a fascinating I mean that was my first real music festival I had seen Clash of the Titans which was like a Megadeth Anthrax and Slayer concert tour but but that wasn't a yearly thing they did one tour you know so yes it was technically a festival but no it wasn't because with with I think with a music festival, there's also other things going on. You know, there's bands, and then there's like a, a, a Jim Rose freak show or whatever it was. You know, right. there's always kind of little side stages. Um, but like Lollapalooza was my first real festival, and it was fascinating in the sense that just that many people from that many different backgrounds with different tastes and different sort of uh, styles of music all getting together. I mean. Right. It was it was very in, inspirational, and it was also there's fights and weird, crazy shit, and people right. drinking too much, and you know whatever. Um, but that was my first festival. What was when was your first concert? What was your first? My concert, first Andy? concert was 1999 at SDSU, and I saw Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> fifth row. Dude, uh, I was seven years old. <laughs> that I is loved a, Weird Al, and still dude, do. First of yeah. all. Why, who, if you don't like Weird Al, you are right. so fucking dead inside. <laughs> um, yeah. I, dude, that is a great, great first concert. Oh, my gosh. Know? It was great. You know, it was right around the fat era. He had the huge <sighs> bubble suit, and he changed c- costumes every song, came into the audience. And also, interesting story, too. My, uh, my uh, I uh, ran into him at a church I went to 
my uh, uh, a couple years back, my ex brought me to a church. Uh, you know, we just wanted to go, and it was in Hollywood, and we're sitting in the back pew. And a minute before the service starts, Weird Al just comes in, and sits in the back pew, and sits there the entire time, and just quietly leaves at the end. And I'm like, we're in church with Weird Al. Also, how well rounded of a guy is that too? It's just Dude. <laughs> like that's awesome. <laughs> when you examine Weird Al's career. Yeah. He's produced music. He's, yep. you know what I mean? He's a multi-talented guy. Yeah. We are going to do a whole show on him. Oh, please do. Because I, I'm a massive fan. I did, I got to do a commercial with him. Really? Um, yeah. It, Radio Shack, right before they went full chapter 11, made one last push to try to get people to yeah. buy their products. And Weird Al was kind of a fan of Radio Shack and some of the gadgets they had. So they got him. <laughs> And I played this guy, no lines, creepy uncle. I just wave at the camera. I'm there for, you know, I'm on set for an hour maybe. Yeah. But I, but because I told the director how much of a fan I was, he was like, dude, go talk to, bring some stuff for him to sign. That's awesome. I, I went out that night, bought the first five records he ever made, which are my favorite. Of course. And he signed every one. And I oh. gave them to my brother-in-law, my brother and my wife and myself because wow. we're all massive fans. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, he was the nicest guy. I told him I had a Weird Al joke where I talk about seeing Weird Al at the improv and then going to call my brother to tell him because he's also a Weird Al fan. Yeah. But my brother's my brother's an idiot, so my brother doesn't really think before he speaks. So I'm like, hey, man, you should get down here. Weird Al is here, to which he responds with, huh, Yankovic or Pacino? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just, I told him that joke, and he was like, Oh, that's funny. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, we'll move on from Weird Al. But that's a great, that's an amazing first concert, oh, dude. Oh, it was, yeah. Uh, my first concert was Metallica and the Cult in oh, 1989. Yeah. Hell uh, yeah. The End the Justice for All tour. But it set the stage for me. <clears throat> Live music became something that I was immediately addicted to. Me too. I, I mean, I've gone to so I've seen so many Grateful Dead shows, so many seen Slayer. You know, every every band I ever liked, for the most part, I've been able to see. Unless they were like, you know, I never got to see Queen. I never got to see yeah. Led Zeppelin. I never got to see, but even the Who I've seen. It's like, right. I mean, not the full band, but you get it. Right. Right. Um. But so music in general has always been a massive thing. And the festival thing has just been entertaining, you know? I mean, the the quick kind of history, like Newport Jazz Festival has been running since 1954. You know what I mean? The Newport Folk Fest since 1959. Um, and then you get into stuff like the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. And then I guess I didn't realize this Summerfest in Milwaukee, which is a massive festival, started in 1968. I had no idea. Um, and if you're not familiar with Summerfest, look it up. It's some fascinating. They've had some great bands. I saw in 1999, I saw Bob Dylan and Paul Simon at Summerfest. Oh, my gosh. It was wild, dude. I took three shits in five different porta potties. It was <laughs> fucking crazy. But then, like we said, Woodstock changed everything. And then people, I mean, it's hard. You argue that. After Woodstock, when you bring in money, you bring in suits, you bring in corporations, and shit just goes down the tubes. But you can still get good music out of these things. It's just, it's just becoming harder. But what happened was in 1970, early 1970, 71, 72, 73, 
Bill Graham, uh, concert promoter. Uh, he was, he was the, the word is impresario. impresario. He was <laughs> a guy who like dealt with productions, like Broadway type plays. Mm, you know, that was his, that's right. his background. And then he starts sort of, he kind of, he's from the San Francisco, the Bay Area, right? The 60s, Grateful Dead come up. 1964, 65, they start getting massive stage time through Bill Graham's uh, venues, Winterland Ballroom, the Fillmore. So Bill Bill Graham has now become this professional concert promoter. And he's he's like, without, I mean, Bill Graham, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, these people oh. all benefited from Bill Graham's expertise in promoting concerts. Right. And he put together, in my opinion, when you look at the bands that played there and the amount of work and effort that made it different than other festivals, uh, he put together Day on the Green. And that is what we're focusing on today. Day on the Green was uh, shows that took place at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum in Oakland, California, 1973 to 1991, which is when Bill Graham died. He died in a helicopter crash. Mm. Probably a month after the the 1991 day on the green. Wow. So, yeah. So um, he was just an, he's an impressive guy anyway. And then our guest today is Dean Del Rey, who I've I've, I've known Dean just through doing stand up and uh, online. Very super nice guy. But I follow his posts, and on Instagram he posted a picture of day on the green, September 2nd, 1978. And it was a, a blackboard, like a chalkboard of the lineup that he went and saw. And then he said, this was my first concert. But I've, I think what he meant is first, like he had seen other music. Like he, I think he says the Beatles, Beatlemania, like kind of cover tribute bands, whatever. Yeah. This was his first real rock and roll concert, yeah. Bay Area. I mean, when I saw that, I knew he was the guy to talk to about it, but also like, man, you saw Weird Al when you were seven. I saw Metallica when I was in eighth grade. Like, but seeing the lineup is Cheap Trick, ACDC, Journey, Blue Oyster Cult, and Ted Nugent, and I think one other band, but like that, wow. That's fucking insane. That is insane. That is insane. And that's mostly at their infancy in their careers, right? Dude, well, that's the thing is he would get Bill Graham got some of these people coming in that were like at the top of their game and yeah. some coming in just on their way up and yeah. some were like in this weird middle ground. So like the first one they did was 1973, okay? And the lineup was, and this is the thing, I think they started to, when he started it, Bill Graham's idea was to get as many different kind of acts together, giving people a wider variety of music. Eventually the lineups seemingly became more curated and were focused and geared towards certain audiences who liked that genre of music, mm. you know? So in 1973, the first one goes off, Leon Russell, <laughs> Elvin Bishop, who's a blues guy, Mary McCreary, who uh, I think ended up marrying Elvin Bishop, but was an R&B singer uh, in her own right. And Loggins and Messina. That's Kenny Loggins for anyone who's not familiar. Yeah. Footloose. Footloose. Danger okay. Zone. Yeah, Kenny Loggins. Loggins and Messina. Like that lineup doesn't interest me so much in the sense that I would go, but I wasn't like, ooh. But then right. they start to like, they, he's obviously 73 went well and people made money. 
because the lineups after that, I just want to blast through them because I think it's kind of worth it. But uh, so I read what happened in 1973. 1974, you got The Grateful Dead, The Beach Boys, New Riders on the Purple Sage, Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, The Band, Joe Walsh, Jesse Colin Young. 75, you got Chicago, The Beach Boys, Commander Cody again, New Riders again, Bob Seeger, Doobie Brothers, Eagles, Kingfish with Bob Weir. Elton John oh pops in for a couple God. of encores. Robin Trower, Dave Mason, Peter Frampton, Fleetwood Mac, Gary Wright, Edgar Winter Group, Johnny Winter, Leonard Skinner, F- Earthquake, Climax Blues Band. That's 1975. 1976, Frampton again, Fleetwood Mac again, Gary Wright, Status Quo, UFO, Boz Skaggs, Tower of Power, Santana, Jeff Beck, Journey, Niles Lufgren, Jay Giles Band, Blue Oyster Cult, Mahogany Rush, Sammy Hagar, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, Nancy Wilson, Harold Melvin, Donald Byrd, Hanton Hawes, Natalie Cole, Smokey Robinson, Happy Chinooka, everybody, Staples, <laughs> Staples Singers, <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass, B.B. King, Archie Bell, The Beach Boys, America, Elvin Bishop, again john sebastian eagles again linda rodstan loggins and messina again 77 fleetwood mac doobie brothers gary wright eagles steve miller hart peter frampton skinnerd zeppelin led zeppelin and judas priest at the largest day on the green in history led zeppelin's last united states of america shows the last time they played in america 723 and 724 1977 with judas fucking priest okay i can't explain to you how badass that show would be but when we talk to dean there's just it's it's fascinating because dean has had the pleasure of speaking directly with rob halford the lead singer of judas priest he's had so many interesting people on his podcast um that talking to dean was just like talking to all those people so it's it's, an incredible interview with a guy who's just awesome just and, an awesome yeah. guy, yeah. Dude, and 78, 1978 was the year that he went, right? He went to September 7, 2nd. But before that, those shows, because they were multi-weekends, it was multiple weekends. It wasn't all on the same weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So the weekends before, leading up to September 2nd in 1978 were Beach Boys, Linda Ronstadt, Alvin Bishop again, Dolly Parton, Aerosmith, Van Halen, 1978, Van Halen. They, their wow. first album just came out. The Stones, Santana, Eddie Money, Peter Tosh, Toots and the Maytals. Like, wow, getting reggae in there, huh? Dude, he, but Bill awesome. Graham got everybody in there. And then, like I said, Dean's first show was Cheap Trick, ACDC, Journey, Blue Oyster Cult, and Ted Nugent headlining. Today, I would reverse that order and make Ted yeah. Nugent open, then Blue Oyster Cult, then Cheap Trick. Yeah, have, well, have then Ted Journey, Nugent then, play as, as people walk in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good, that's exactly what I would do now. But, but, um, but just what, I mean, what an amazing, amazing fucking, and and this old, I'm only reading up until 78. So after 78, it goes on until 91. So that's all the way through the 80s. So you're talking, they get Metallica and Anthrax and they're getting metal bands and they're getting... And multiple, a lot of bands played multiple times. Some bands only played once, never played again. But this was at the beginning of ACDC's yeah. fuck, kind of rocket It's an interesting, to interesting this. to see, like, they did the first year and kind of go, okay, we really have something here. Let's let's get some heavy hitters in here. And then they're like, Dude. heavy hitter after heavy hitter after heavy hitter. It's insane. 
And with a guy like Bill Graham, by the time 73 rolls around, if Bill Graham called you to say he wanted your band to play somewhere, my guess is you just asked when and where and what yep. time, how to get, you know, you just moved because that guy, yep. literally, I don't know if the Grateful Dead would be in the situation they're in now without a guy like Bill Graham giving them the stage time and the areas right. to play, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was Bill Graham's birthday just the other day, which is kind of interesting. I didn't even really realize it until... I'd already talked, uh, I'd already asked Dean to be on the show. So uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a pointless story. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I don't know. This is talking with Dean. I think you guys are going to find it fascinating because uh, I, I absolutely loved it. It was really fun. Um, I don't have too much more, I yeah. guess. Uh, enjoy. And enjoy Dean Del Rey, guys. Day on the green, baby. From the Let There Be Talk podcast, uh, which is about 572 episodes in, it's some of the uh, best interviews out there right now, best discussions with some of the most unique and creative people that there are, uh, and that have influenced me and a uh, shit ton of other people, I assume. Got a new podcast called The Grail that uh, he just started. Probably recognize him from Marin. A uh, couple of movies. The guy is probably the hardest working stand-up comic I know and has achieved uh, a lot in a very small amount of time in the world of comedy. Dean Del Rey, everybody. What's happening? Hey, buddy. I know Fuck. we've been we've been chatting about the BGs. Um, you are a music uh, lover. I, I, I'm, I, you know what I mean? Like, you're a guy, you're like me, there is kind of like variety is the spice of life. You're, you're not going to when I was younger, I did this, and I, I heard you say you did it too. You grew up in the Bay Area, correct? Right. You did not like the Grateful Dead growing up, correct? Didn't. Didn't. Because you were in the Bay Area, and it was being shoved down your throat as San Francisco music scene. And like any kid coming up, you rebel against the thing that everybody else is doing. You're like, dude, you guys are fucking nerds. I'm out. And... I heard you talking to Andy Kindler about it on your podcast and saying, and I, cause I don't know you that well, but I know that you, you're, you know, John Mayer, you go to all the dead and co shows. And I assumed if you're listening to the dead and company, I assumed there was this long kind of uh, San Francisco background there that you grew up on the grateful dead. And that just wasn't the case. You're more of a, you were more of a rock and roller. Is that? Well, I liked all different music and, uh, I always like to make that clear because even early you, on, yeah, early on, man, I was, like I said, BGs, right. I was way into <clears throat> and fire. I was way into, uh, James Brown. Um, I loved, uh, disco and I loved rock and, uh, and I loved Carol King. So I was what, all over the board. Where did all that come from? It was just, from really, I think about it because yesterday was Bill Graham's birthday. Birthday, yes, yes, yeah. There was a few things. It was uh, my mom spinning records in the house, but also, uh, and I've talked to many people about this, which is not around anymore. I talked to Ron Bennington about it. Back then, radio, there was a station in the Bay Area called KFRC, AM radio, 610, would play anything. So you're going to get... Uh, you're going to get, you know, the Jackson five, then you're going to get, uh, let's say captain and Tennille. Sure. And then you're going to get 
Van Halen danced the night away. If it was a hit, the radio played it. So it didn't no matter, matter it were. genre or anything. And that is gone now. So that was one of the things. And then the main thing I would say would be growing up around Bill Graham's uh, concert bookings. So, and it was his birthday yesterday. So Bill yes. would just do these shows and it would be, you don't know who is just a, a gamut of different styles and everything. Yeah. And that was, and that's, uh, I saw your post the other day, your first concert ever, um, which is, is a, is a, is always like a, to me, it's a landmark thing. When you talk to somebody who loves music and you're like, what was your first concert? And they tell you, it doesn't really matter what it was in the sense that like, if it wasn't that cool or whatever, but like the fact that they got into music and they were there and they went and saw it live and that kind of hooked them in your first fucking concert was a day on the green show at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum, County Coliseum, and it was, uh, what, September 2nd, 1978. Yeah, right? that's actually okay. my first day in the green. I saw a couple uh, concerts before, you know, oh, you Be- Beatlemania, this kind of stuff, you know. Concert. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that was my first, like, whoa, uh, you know, uh, like a big, big show. I'm talking about, I didn't go to, to any kind of arenas or anything until that show. And, and the, the reason I was going was I was in love with Ted Nugent at the time. Uh, Cat Scratch. Interesting. Fever. Yeah, there was a, uh, a girl. There was two different people. One of my best friends was this guy, Chris Mahalik. And his sister, Esther Mahalik, would drive us to junior high she would have to drive us. The parents are like, we'll give you a car, but you got to drive your little brother to school too. Right. <laughs> and she had the eight track and I never forgot it. It was, it was double live gonzo, you know? And, yeah. and we were in the back, like I was in the back getting lessons from her and this other guy named Rick Ortega, who was my buddy, Bobby Ortega's older brother. So you get in the car and you're going to get Eagles life in the fast lane These are eight tracks. One of them was a Camaro. The other one was a Toyota Corolla, but with both eight tracks, they would pop them in, you know, uh, Boston one and two, uh, heavy rotation Zeppelin. Uh, but Nugent really grabbed me first. So when was it, what about Nugent grabbed you first? Was it, there was just the radicalness of double live gonzo, the raps in between, like, you know, if you came to, if you came to be mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here. You, <laughs> fuck yeah. you know, like you're in sixth, seventh grade and these raps that he would fire off, you know, I, I, I don't think I came here to be a little bit mellow. You know what I mean? Did anybody yeah. hear? Did I come to be a little bit mellow? And you're just like, what the fuck is this? You know? But at the same time, I'm watching uh, Saturday Night Live with Belushi. And this is kind of my introduction also to radical outlaw type of stuff. The music on there, Devo and and uh, the Stone 78, Some Girls. I was, I was obsessed with the Some Girls record. Miss You was a huge hit. So all of that was mixing in with me. So when the Ted was coming, uh, I was like, I, I got to go to this. So we got the tickets. My mom got them. We drove and, uh, it started at 10 AM in the morning. That, I saw the chalkboard with the lineup and t- Ted Nugent is headlining the show. The concert, I mean, 
let's see. What is it? Uh, cheap trick plays first, right? Like right. today, I, today I feel like, um, it, it might be a completely reversed order, but it's cheap trick, ACDC journey, blue oyster cult, and then Ted Nugent. Right. If you can, I mean, if for anybody watching, listening, if you can comprehend the, first of all, journey must've been massive at the time. Well, they had the infinity record had just come out with wheel in the sky and lights. So they were fucking huge. On they, their way, yeah. They had just got Steve Perry and lights was a massive hit on the record on the radio. And so is wheel in the sky. And man, that is, uh, is the greatest journey record ever made. Greg yeah. Raleigh and Steve Perry singing together. So if you look at those bands, the only one I knew at the time was Nugent. I knew some uh, Journey song, and I knew Sin City because it was being played on the radio. From Power, was that Power Age? Power Age, and that's the Power Age tour. Brand new. Right, But I don't know ACDC. I don't know. I know Cheap Trick. Uh, I can't remember if it's – I don't even think I know Cheap Trick because I don't know when Over the Edge comes out with Matt Dillon. That's when I really learned Cheap Trick. Uh, but when I get there in the morning, by the end of the day, my whole life has changed. Every one of those bands I listen to today. Yeah. And, and ACDC, uh, from what I glean off the internet is your favorite band. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, yeah, there's like five favorite bands, but ACDC and Zeppelin are the ones. Sure. And, and Zeppelin has played day on the green. I mean, the, the, the amount of bands that came through some, and I think it started as a kind of a carefully curated, like not cur- sorry as big of a, a um, hodgepodge as you could get. And then they kind of eventually became very curated lineups. Like this is a Motown lineup. This is a rock and roll lineup. But, but at the beginning it was like, here's a guy who plays, here's, you know, uh, a jazz guy, here's some blues. Here's, and, yeah. and it was kind of, and they kind of just the Bill Graham thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because again, music, if you, if you, if you really, if you put on blinders and you only like one type of music or you only think like, I'm a, I like rock and roll and that's it. I, you are missing out on, on things that are, uh, they'll tickle your brain, man. It'll tickle your brain. It's the, okay, here's what I want to, how old were you? I was in, uh, so I'm 54 now about to be 55. So I was going into seventh grade. So okay, it was the summer good. of like sixth grade going into seventh grade. Um, I believe that's the, uh, that is the thing on it. Yeah. Um, I have the shirt. It's around here. I should have busted it out for you. It. Can't, oh. You can't wear that still, though. No, no. <laughs> but. Because the shirt, I mean, I was a, you know, 12-year-old or a 11-year-old. Kid. Yeah, so it's like a fucking <laughs> – I have it here, though, and it's, uh, it's pretty monumental. I, but I, I brought a camera. Wow. And I took pictures – and it is unreal. And I'll send them over to you or whatever. I'll dig them up uh, upstairs. But there's that classic stoner look, the white wife beater uh, yep. and a headband, but not in a gang way, uh, you know, folded small back then, you know? Yeah, yeah. around the top, just around, yeah. Yeah, and then shitty little pencil mustaches on all the guys trying to grow mustaches because mustache rock was huge in the 70s. You had to have a mustache, man. B.O.C., Nugent, Austin. It was mustache rock. So 
you know? <laughs> so everyone's trying like, no, I got it. It's coming oh, yeah. in. It's yeah. coming in. Dude, you got dirt on your lip. What is that? No, yeah. no. That's a mustache. So I, I brought a shitty little Instamatic and took the pictures and I still got, oh, I think I got one here. Hold on. Let me see if I can show you. Um, Cause I, I, I keep them in my phone. Uh, it's pretty unreal though. And I think the thing we need to address is what I had never seen is uh, I'll find it later. Cause I don't want to stall this out, but, there was a guy, and of course I know everything about Dan the Green because I think it's the greatest uh, United States concert series ever done. It, it's a gold to me. It's the gold standard of of everything that's come after it. You know, right, right. But what a huge part of that was a guy named Dennis Larkins, and what he did was he was in charge of painting the scrims which set the scene. The scrims are the things that go over the stage uh, speakers there that no one had done before. Before you just show up at a show, like if you look at like Woodstock or whatever, it's just speakers and fucking, uh, you know, scaffolding. Yeah. That was it. And then a fucking piece of wood. Well, Bill had this idea of like, I want these concerts. How can we make them feel like Broadway, like a play or something, bring it in. So we're not just in a shitty baseball park. And that comes from, yeah, go ahead. Fuck. fuck Yeah. And it comes from like, I want this thing to be like, we're in the theater, man. And he got this guy, Dennis Larkin, and who's got a book. um, And they came up with set designs for every show. So the one I went to, the first one, was a jungle. Ted Nugent, you know, and and Ted swung out on a vine and bombs went off. And it was a full jungle with all of these fucking, like, um, uh, voodoo heads. You know, they like stick sculpting the sticks. (laughs) That was all around. And and so I I walk into the baseball park and I'm like, I'd been there to see the A's play. I was going to say, you'd been there before. You'd seen the A's play. Correct. So now I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is insane. So to see bands with these backdrops. So if you, you can Google them and I own photos of every stage that was done. I own them now. They're all, uh, uh, my what dream is just to do a whole day in the greenhouse, you know? Oh, wow. What so do you, you, you own photos of it? What, what? Giant photo. There was a pro guy named Baron Woolman who just passed away, who I had on the podcast. And he was in charge of shooting these. So each show, he would go to the back of the Coliseum and shoot the stage. So you could really oh. see. Yeah. So you get the throw. So every one. So, you know, if you look at Boston, it's Boston too. The ship is fucking flying in. You know, if you look at, um, if you look at uh, monsters of rock, it's, it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a, and a, a, another dinosaur fighting, you know, Uh, they had in British invasion with Frampton and that was, um, you know, it was a castle. And then they had uh, Mount Rushmore, which was cool for Fourth of July, and that was uh, Skinner and and you know, so there was all these, and they're humongous, man. Hold on, I'll get the book. Okay. I gotta turn my background off, or else you won't see it here. Okay. You can tell I've been zooming for a long time. Yeah, you got that. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> this is the guy's book. 
Oh, wow, dude. His name's Dennis Larkins, okay? And he did the Grateful Grape- Dead, Warfield. Oh, Dead yes, Set. yes. Yeah, okay? Yeah. Now, I'm, I've been trying to do a documentary on Dan DeGreen here for 10 years now. And uh, so let me give you. Wait, you have? You've been trying to do a documentary? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. I, dude, honestly, I had no idea. Oh, oh yeah. So, uh, okay. So here's Monsters of Rock. Okay. There it is. Good. That's uh, the dinosaurs. And that's Nugent on right there. That was Nugent Aerosmith that day. Um. <clears throat> this is a great photo. It's Bill down here looking at it. And there's the sketches of the dinosaurs. Okay. And then uh, this is my favorite one, and I own a painting of this. This is Zeppelin, and this is where the Stonehenge comes from, from uh, Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and what people don't know is, these things were so big. This one was great. It was Hagar, and he came out of the side of a Trans Am. Oh, my God. That's fucking genius. Yeah, and then <laughs> um, this one's great. Rock and Roll Circus. They were huge. I mean, you got to yeah. understand how fucking big these things were. And that's and that's Bill Graham being a guy who came from putting on plays and being that impresario Right. Producer guy. Look at the Boston one. Dude, that is sick. And then he painted them all in Winterland uh, at first, but then Winterland got torn down, so they painted them over at the Oakland airport in a airplane hangar. That's how big they were. Oh, wow. And then, and then they would roll them out and, uh, and post them up. So I met Dennis Larkins, and he had done a full three-dimensional painting of um, the Stones uh, Tattoo You Tour stage for Bill, including the people and everything. So I reached out, found him about 15, 16 years ago and said, can you do the Zeppelin painting for me? And he did it and I own it. It's a full giant three-dimensional painting of that stage. And it looks like the people and you see the guys on stage. It's like nothing, here I'll show you. It's like nothing you've ever seen. And... Um, uh, it took him a year to paint it for me. How, and, where do you, where is that? Where do you put that? Uh, it's hanging in my house. Okay. Here. So here is what Bill Graham's stones one looks like. And what you can't see is that's all three dimensional. So he sprays the painting with like foam to give it like 3d effect. Uh, so it's like you, if you touched it, you would feel it. Oh, yeah, you feel it. It's like, so mine is the Zeppelin, and it's two things I love. Dennis Larkin, who uh, did the paintings, and Baron Woolman, who shot the photos. So I took the Baron Woolman photo and had the guy paint it for me. And it's, uh, it's, it's the crown jewel of my collection, for sure. Wow, man, that is, that is impressive. How, how many days on the green did you end up going to? Uh, I pretty much saw them all from then on out. Uh, no shit, because the lineups are I mean, unreal. So did you see the Led Zeppelin? Dance? No, that was 77. It was oh, one year, year I was one year too uh, young, man. Yeah. And that is what a lot of people don't know is Zeppelin's last, last shows in America US ever. Shows. 
Yeah. And because uh, they're supposed to play New Orleans like two days later, and Plant Sun dies. So the tour is canceled. They go back home. They don't play for a long time. They do in through the outdoor. They book a U.S. tour, and Bonzo dies after the Europe 13 uh, dates uh, in Germany. So they never come back. That's also the show, if you read the Bill Graham book, which is unbelievable, um, that is the show where Peter Grant and the other guy beat up uh, beat almost to death the staff guy working for Bill Graham because Peter Grant's son, I guess, or somebody's son was taking the the Zeppelin name off the dressing room to take home, and a security guard came up and threw him down like, what are you doing? You don't touch that shit. And then Bonzo, uh, Bonzo, Peter Grant, and another guy threw the guy in a dressing room and beat him down. And then that night, in the hotel, uh, Bill Graham came to their room and they said, you got to sign this saying you won't sue us or we don't play tomorrow. So he signed it. And uh, there's the law that if you sign something under distress or whatever, yeah, it's it, under duress. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't matter. So they arrested the guys the next day after the show. And I don't know, they paid and got out or whatever. But it's a it's a really dark, dark cloud. Of, the, of a day and also uh judas priest opened that show and Dude, rick derringer how crazy is that priest and zeppelin on on a show to, i mean that's just mind-blowing to me that's something you look i can't even fathom seeing today i had robert plant or sorry i had uh rob halford on the podcast a couple weeks ago and i asked him how it came about and he said that um that Robert Plant requested them and had liked the uh, Judas Priest, one of the records or whatever. And they were just finishing their U S tour and they were about to fly home and they got the call to do the gig. So they didn't want to fly home. They didn't have enough money to fly home and come back. So they stayed in a shitty seedy hotel around the corner from Oakland Coliseum for two weeks Two weeks. Instead of flying back to England. Yeah, and, and, they, and it was like the band in one room and the crew in another, and it was like a shitty green molded swimming pool, and he said they're, they're like laying around the pool each day waiting to do the show, and they hadn't played in two weeks, no rehearsal or anything, uh, just waiting to do the show. And they show up and they play in front of Led Zeppelin. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fucking... And, two, and two days. And I assume uh, Halford... Rob Halford speaks fondly of that in, in a way of like how when you're just starting out in comedy and you're always on the road and like things, you look back on those days like, man, that was fucking crazy. <laughs> game changer, game changer yeah. for them because 65,000 saw him each day and Robert Plant was a fan and, and threw him a bone. And, and I, I was talking to Marin about this last night. There's these key things in your career, no matter what you're doing, even if you're fucking, you know, a construction guy, but a comedian, especially there's just little bumps in your career that really could help. Even if it's a pro guy going, that's a great joke, dude. When you got off stage and you go home and you're like, fuck man, you know, Marin thought that was or David tell or, or Burr thought that was a great joke. Just a little thing like that or opening for one of these guys 
Those are the things that really keep you going. Yeah, I tell, I tell, on, man. Yeah, I, I, I want to quit music. I played it twenty five years. I wanted to quit the last ten years, but I kept getting these bumps. It's almost like chipping away like a junkie. Somebody go, hey, you want to open this tour? And I'd be like, I was just gonna quit. Yeah, I guess. So yeah, I'll do the tour, and then you're in another two years. <laughs> Dude, and that's uh, yeah. You were you were a musician before you were a comedian. Were yeah. you were you playing guitar? And back when you were in middle school, were you seeing, when you saw Dan the Green, were you already playing the guitar? I, I didn't play guitar till later, uh, live on stage. I was a singer because I got drums first and uh, couldn't play drums on my, I was just like, you know, in my apartment. And yeah. I was like, this is no good. Then I traded the drums for a Gibson SG because I loved ACDC. And I was learning guitar and uh, playing rhythm and shit, but every band needed a singer. Nobody needed a guitar player. There's a million guitar players. No one wanted to sing. So I was like, fuck it, I'll sing. And, uh, you know, I started singing and then fucking half my life went by. Yeah. The the truth is I wanted to do comedy the whole time, you know? Well, I loved Saturday Night Live. I loved Caddyshack. I loved Belushi. I loved uh, Jonathan Winters. I loved Newhart. I loved All in the Family. (laughs) I loved Cheech and Chong. I loved Sanford and Son. So as much as I loved music, I loved comedy exactly the same. Exactly the same. There There was no difference. That's so interesting. Growing up, I feel like I loved music and comedy the same as well. But there was always I was like, oh, but but I want to be I want to be a guitar. I want to be Eddie Van Halen. I want to be on stage playing the guitar. And and slowly I'm like, or do I not want to lug gear around or do I'm I'm not even a good guitar player like this? I got no future here. Like being I can be in a I can be in shitty bands my whole life or I can just move on and keep playing the guitar on my own. And that's essentially what I did and then found comedy, you know, years later. But, um, I always think like comics deep down want to be rock stars and rock stars deep down were like, man, I'd love to do what you do. That's great. <laughs> well, that's, that's how my podcast started. Cause I was thinking, well, I'll interview all these rock stars that I worked with or knew over the years and ask him if they ever wanted to do comedy at the end of the episode. That's how the, the yeah. whole, the whole thing started. But I mean, if there was YouTube and comedy camps and all that shit when I was growing up, I would have been a comedian. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in San Francisco and comedy was massive there in the 80s. That's the first oh. comedy boom. Massive. You had the San Francisco Comedy Festival was huge. You had Bobby Slayton, Kerry Snow and Alex Bennett show in the mornings. You had Robin Williams and then you had Bobcat and Bobcat changed it all for me. As soon as I saw Bobcat, I was like, what the fuck is this? This is I can radical. be a madman and a comedian. Yeah, yeah. And be homeless. a rock and roll comedian. I, I can be a rock was, and roll comedian. Right, right. And it's funny because when I started comedy 11 years ago, I immediately was saying, I do not want to be known as the rock and roll comedy comic, and I don't want to be known as the biker comic at all. So I'm glad that it didn't happen back then because I would have been boxed in all those years. But you, but eventually you would have, you could have broken yeah. out of, you know, it's just, you're right. Some people do get, um, they kind of become prisoners of their own personality. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and if, even if you wanted to, like, I remember when I first started doing comedy, the first time I showed up to do a set 
with jeans that were, I used to do all these jokes about how I looked homeless and I stole all my clothes off a dead guy at Hollywood Park and all this fucking random shit. And I showed up in a new pair of jeans one day and this guy looked at me and goes, well, what are you going to talk about? And I was like, I don't want to be the fucking homeless comic. I don't want to be the ripped jeans comic. I'm like, I got jokes, bitch. Like, and then I had to like really focus on like, it didn't matter how I looked. I just needed to get up there and be funny, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You get those crutches going. Like I had a giant mustache. Remember? Like I, I grew the mustache for, for a movie and then people were like, keep that man. You'll get a lot of auditions and stuff. And I didn't get shit from it. And also had three years of a mustache for no reason. I'm, I, you didn't get any commercials out of that. Fuck no, man. I, no. You know, I never landed anything, man. Anything I got was from the comedy store stage. Somebody would come up and go, Hey, I got a movie for you, man. Uh, you know, I did a lot of movies and TV over the last 10 years and it was all from the store from being on and somebody coming up like, Hey, you interested in doing this or that, you know, or, or Marin threw me a bone or, or yeah. being on love, you know, uh, that TV show love, yeah. that kind of stuff all from the store, you know, that's awesome, dude. That is awesome. Because, because there, there is, that's very rarely do I ever read or hear about somebody who does something strictly by the rules that are provided by the gatekeepers and that they succeed. Does that make sense? Like you read a book like, Oh, I moved to LA and then they told me I needed to get a manager and then get headshot. So I did this and then I did this and then I did this and then I did none of that shit ever. Like we were talking about this. The first episode of this show was a kind of a celebration of podcasts themselves. Yeah. And Marin's podcast, what the fuck really, um, like when you talk about, you get a, you get a bump and you kind of like, Oh, I'm going to keep going. Like, I was like wondering if comedy was still for me. And then I got live at Gotham and then that's another three years. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. And then I'm like, Oh man, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And then I get something else. But when I started listening to Marin's podcast, he's always interested me as a human being kind of from a distance, just because, uh, he always seemed kind of a loner and he did seem like a guy who burned a lot of bridges early on. So I wasn't sure his whole story, but that podcast, I always liked how one, he would have guests on that he knew didn't like him from the past. So he'd be like, okay, what did, what did I do to you? You know, 15 years ago or whatever. And, but two, the most important thing I got out of that was every comic he talked to, whether I thought they were worthwhile uh, as performers or not, um, or like comedy, every one of them had a, had a different idea what it was going to be like when they got to where they were going. Oh, I got to LA and I thought this, this, and this, and then they ended up on a different path. And they found a way to be happy doing this other thing or this other thing they didn't even know about brought them joy or whatever it was. But like, nobody's ever like, I did it by the book and it yeah, worked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny too. When you think about, I think about comedy and uh, how competitive it is. And, 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 and for Mary to have these people on and say, Hey, what did I do wrong? And everything. I think as you know, fucking hippie as this sounds, I don't understand the anger over somebody getting successful or if, or if something small happens between two comics, I don't understand why they don't just pull each other aside and go, Hey man, I wasn't digging this. Just give you a heads up, not being a dick, but uh, let's just squish this now. And uh, we're going to be in the hall for 20 years here, the hallway. Yeah. So, uh, I really don't understand that, that frame of mind. Now with Marin, I get it because, uh, 
people grow apart, people go across country, uh, people's careers go up and down. But early on, you know, when people get in, you know, somebody come up, ah, fuck that guy. I'm like, ah, not, not really. I, my, I don't have any enemies. My enemies are cancer and heart attacks. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I don't get it. There's, there is like, I, I, I can admit very freely to this of when I was earlier on before I kind of got my wits about me when I was, when I was starting out, I, was I would get angry at people, other people's success. And then slowly I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You're mad because someone got a thing that you didn't even audition for. Yeah. You're mad because someone is living in a newer house because they got a TV show that you didn't audition for. Like yeah. where, get your shit together, dude, get out there. If you, if you, if I'm that mad that somebody's getting a part ahead of me, I better right. fucking step up my game and get in front of that dude and then fucking get that part myself. So when people get jealous or angry about, or they're, when they're mad about something at the club or they're mad about something in the, in the world of comedy, you're just like, take a, take a breath, take a step back. Look yep. at the big picture, man. You could have a pile of paperwork for a job you hated that you had to work 16 hours a day for the rest of your life. Like things could be much, much worse. I, I, I mean, and also nothing's fair. Nothing is fair. And I worked at Harley Davidson selling motorcycles before I did comedy. And there were dudes that fucking hated that job. So it doesn't matter if you're in comedy, there's not going to be any magical spot unless you work for yourself. So where you go like, man, I love everybody and everybody's positive and it's great. It just doesn't happen uh, because people are humans. But there is one thing I know and, and people taught me this early on. Everybody has their own route. Nobody took anything from you. And uh, it, most of the time, it's just reflecting on your own anger of like, I'm lazy. I smoke weed. I play video games. That motherfucker hustles. Fuck him. You know, fuck right, him. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you got up before I did today. What a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, but it's really fuck me. I'm fucking slacking. I haven't wrote new jokes. I haven't fucking waited in line in the sun to go on. I haven't started a podcast nine years ago. And I'm not just saying me. I'm just saying, yeah. like, when people are angry, you usually go like, you know, it's really, really you're angry at yourself and, and just fix it. And it's, that's honestly, if, if people did that with their with any emotion, uh, if you can just be that set of eyes that's watching how you react, not your thoughts, not your personality, not yeah. who you are, but like your literal true awareness, that ball of energy that can see you reacting to the things that you're reacting to. If you can take just a, a beat to go, why, why am I mad? Why am I angry? Why am I pissed? Why am I happy? Why am I sad? And just think about that. You will diffuse any kind of reactionary outburst that is going to, that you are, that might happen. I mean, yep. Um, I mean, I've, I've had plenty of anger and stuff, but I, I don't just throw it out there. I just, I, I work on myself and, uh, you know, yeah. And, and I don't bring it to the club. I go, here we go. This is great. And you've always, I mean, since I've seen you around the store, since you started doing comedy, when I noticed you, I've, you've never, whenever I say hi to you, there are some people, even if you don't know them though, Hey man, how you doing? Oh, fuck. You know, and then you get like an earful. Yeah, I've never gotten that from you. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying I stop you and go, Dean, seriously, tell me how you are. But like, 
there are people who I just randomly say hi to, and then I have to sit there and listen to, you know, why the world has taken a dump on them. Yeah. Yeah. How it's not yeah. their fault. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to uh, concerts real quick. You went from being a, a singer in, in bands, you went to, to selling motorcycles, doing comedy now. Would you, how, first of all, that ACDC set that they played at Day Out in the Green, the first, I, I just, I kind of want to get back to like, because like my, my first concert was Metallica and the Cult in 1989. Killer. And Saw that. That, yeah, it, that's, I mean, I already loved Metallica, but yeah. that they are, that solidified them as like, oh my God, this is fucking phenomenal. You know, you saw ACDC, was it like a switch or were you like, oh man, these guys are all right. And then you kind of got into them further and then became obsessed or that day, uh, to see each one of those bands, um, was so mind boggling to me because first of all, you got cheap trick comes on. Okay. At they 10 come, in the morning. At 10, 10 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> they come on and they've got this, which is really bizarre about these two bands back to back, which I'd never fucking seen. Rick, who is the guitar player, comes on and he is dressed exact to the that guy in the Bowery Boys that I used to watch those old TV shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slip and Sash. Yeah, and, yeah uh, he's got the fucking, he's got the hat flipped up. He's wearing a weird bow tie, a sweater, and he's just rock. And I go, hey, is that that Bowery boy guy? I swear to God, I thought it was him. I was like, no, this guy's in a band. Okay, so he's completely this weird character. And then next up is ACDC, and you got Angus, who's a character too. Now, this does not happen in rock ever now where a guy comes out and he goes, I'm dressed as a frog the whole show. You know what I mean? Yeah. That shit doesn't happen. And I remember everybody wigging out over, over Angus. And I remember this specifically. They came through the crowd. Bond used to hold Angus and go through the crowd back then, not a security guard like now. Wow. So they came, I'd say about 10 feet from me and I saw Bond's tattoos and that was a game changer for me. I was like, whoa, this guy's crazy. <laughs> I never forgot it. Like he had the fucking big ass parrot on his arm, you know? And I was like, whoa. And I, everybody loved Angus and I was fixed on Bond. Just the way he was up there. He had this mini vest on and he got All right. You sounding good tonight, you know, and you'd be like, what the <laughs> fuck? You know, this is a good day out here, Oakland, you know? And, and I was like, wow. And it, it went by like skydiving. I always say it just like zoom, it was yeah. gone. And then came journey and journey rock the fuck out of the place. You know, somebody quoted on that photo. I posted up like, what the fuck journey with an hour and a half set bullshit. And I was like, First of all, they were the day on, they were the Bay Area's babies. Yeah, I was gonna say they're from San Francisco, aren't right? They? Like right, right. And Bill was way into helping them. Uh, but what happens next really changes my world. Blue Oyster Cult comes on. BOC. They got the Godzilla. It's fucking spitting smoke and shit. They've got the five guitars at the end, five guys playing guitar up front. They got the SGs with the mirrors on the back and they're blasting like sunlight. And then they're, they're running the guitars together. 
the whole fucking day is a a, a, a a theater. It's everything coming at me. And then Nuge comes on and it, he swings out on this fucking on this rope and bombs are going off and he absolutely destroys the place, you know? Opens up with fucking get ready, get ready, stormtroopers come down, you know, just like, I mean, Nude sucks now. And I say it definitely does. Fuck that guy. He is a cocksuck. Yeah. 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 But, uh, and I had Rollins on the show and Rollins loves, um, uh, fucking Nude from that era. Really? Henry uh, Rollins. Oh, him and, um, uh, him and, uh, Fugazi, um, uh, fucking, um, what's his name from Fugazi? They went and saw the Nuge and, uh, he told the story out in DC or whatever. And they love Nuge also big time. <laughs> That's big crazy. Time. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, you know, from that day on, I remember I go home, I get ACDC. If you want blood, you got it record. And, uh, and that was it for me. And then highway to hell came real quick after that. That was the only use like up to the power age. They, the only other album they put out with Bon Scott was highway to hell. Right. Right. That was the last one. That was the last one. So, you know, you got, I mean, they didn't play, uh, America till 77 and they play, uh, old Waldorf in San Francisco on the 77 tour. So they come and play a little club. And then the following year they're playing, a, a fucking goddamn Coliseum. And then they do it again in 78. They do Dan the green in 78. They play it twice in 77. They do it one day with Van Halen. Dude, I saw that lineup. Yeah. I saw that. Cause for me, man, like I, when I first heard, I've heard 1984 when I was in, I bought that and purple rain. And I was like, listening with headphones and my, my, my little ghetto blaster. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was taking guitar lessons in like a week. Yeah. Purple rain is is massive, massive to me. Also at the same way that Saturday night fever is purple rain. The beautiful ones is probably the, you know, the best ballad ever wrote that record. It is, it's something else, man. It's, it's, I, I don't listen. I don't have a ton of prints. Like, you know, I love Prince, but I don't like, I don't, I haven't bought a lot of Prince, but I have Purple Rain on record after I had it on tape for fucking however many years because I love it so much. What you should own is Sign of the Times, the greatest record he ever made. Dude, I heard that record is really good. I've heard, I've heard most of it. I don't think I've heard all of it though. It's nothing better. I met Prince, man. It no was shit. wild. Hung out with him all night in New York. It was so crazy. Whoa. That, how long ago was that? That was back in, uh, probably 2000 two, three or four, right in there somewhere. I was on tour with the wallflowers and Jacob Dylan and I were at, uh, a nightclub called, uh, bungalow eight in New York. Very, very hip club. You know, one of those. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, this guy came over and, and you can hear the whole story on my podcast with, uh, Jacob, because I don't like to ruin the story because Jacob tells the story so fucking good that I don't like to ruin it, but so Jacob you, Dylan on your let there be talk podcast. Yeah. Right. And it's, and he tells the story of us hanging with Prince one night. It's unreal. Yeah. It's so unreal. If you're listening, watching, definitely check that out. Uh, you can find that your podcast is everywhere. It's, uh, anywhere, it's everywhere, but podcast. Stitcher and Spotify. Now I took them off those. Yeah. Because let me guess, you don't get any money from either. Correct. Of them. Correct. Yeah. And they were running ads. 
um, without paying. I've got some fucking balls, huh? Stitcher too, man. Stitcher just sold for uh, 300 million to Sirius XM. They didn't give one nickel to any of us that have been providing content for uh, years and years and years on there. And listen, I do not complain and I do not talk shit about them. I just, uh, I remove it and, uh, and let people know. At yeah. no way do I go, fuck those guys, man. That's you. You have the option. Pull yeah. it off or leave it on. That's yeah. the option. And that's yeah. how I did it, you know? Very smart. Very wise. Um, Dean, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, man. This has been fucking awesome. Uh, I feel like I could probably talk to you about music all day. Um, real quick, just because I am, uh, I love ACDC as well. They were like, once I found Van Halen, it wasn't too long after that. Like I, I was into skateboarding. So I was like always skateboarding and everyone else was starting to listen to all this punk rock, which I did enjoy. But then I heard ACDC from my neighbor and it blew my mind. And the earliest, like the Bon Scott years are really like, that is some, in my opinion, now it's underappreciated rock and roll, uh, uh for the most part. But, um, but man, you, the set list, I looked up the set list from that day, live wire, Problem Child, Sin yeah. City, Gone Shooting, Bad Boy Boogie, Whole Lot of Rosie, The Jack, Rocker, Let There Be Rock, and Dog Eat Dog. Oh, that was one thing I forgot to say. They played Dog Eat Dog, right? And then Nugent had a Dog Eat Dog song. And I was like, what the fuck? Are they doing a nude song? I go, wait, is this that song I heard earlier today? You know what I mean? I was just confused, which was wild, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh that set list you got to know whenever bond was in the band uh for years they opened with Livewire, and i recently interviewed acdc on the podcast which was fucking nuts to me dude uh, good for you by the way congratulations that had to have been fucking awesome for you it was beyond it was beyond but i found out why they opened with Livewire. it was because most of the time they didn't have time to sound check so Livewire was basically like a sound check every show so it starts with the bass do 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 so the guy can mix the bass and then it goes the malcolm rhythm <laughs> now he's got the rhythm you know, blah. and then Angus it's comes all in. Being, it's all being done on the board as it's <laughs> right on the fly. That's the sound check, man. And uh, so whenever I do the tribute to Bon Scott, we always open with live wire, you know, Dude, and that's another thing I want to you, you have your birthday party. The last few years, you've done live shows where you sing, play guitar, all the comics and rock stars in your band, play guitar, sing, ACDC songs, exclusively been, Bon Scott ACDC songs. Right? I've been doing it 40 years, but I took like 10 years off when I started comedy because I didn't really know who to do it with, you know, but I did it in the Bay Area oh, years and years and years. Um, and I would pick bands like Exodus and, and Jet Boy. And, I, you know, I had like, uh, uh, you know, people like uh, Paul Gilbert from Mr. Big. I would have all these celebrities play. And, uh, and we would pick a record every year. And then when I moved to LA, I didn't do it for years. And then when I turned 50, I did the Del Rey at the El Rey and I was yes. like, fuck it, let's do this. Uh, you know, Mark plays guitar, Bill plays drums. Let's get some, you know, we had Mike Keneally from Zappa. We had uh, Scotty M from Anthrax and, uh, Tracy guns from LA guns and, and Mark Ford from black crows and you know, Nikki six has done it. And- I mean, these are, these are, these are all 
these are all great musicians. You know what I mean? This oh, isn't yeah. like a fucking ragtag guys who oh, I haven't been in a band in a long time. I will not. These are like oh, all dudes yeah. that fucking still kick ass. Oh yeah. We had Juliet Lewis out there uh, yeah. just crushing dirty Rocks. deeds and Brad Wilk on drums. And, and the guy that really crushes it is uh, Steve Gorman from the black cross. He's the drummer, the main drummer of it. And he's just fucking gold back there, man. Gold. And ACDC, the drums, like, I don't know that they get uh, the respect necessarily deserve, but that first oh. album, Oh, when someone pointed out to me that there were no drum fills anywhere on the album, I was like, well, that, that's not, that can't be right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard one on there. I've listened to it. I, I don't think it's just straight drumming the whole time. He just, yeah. it's, it's fucking, that's, that's insane to me. Like you don't find drummers can't do that. <laughs> well, I thought that's Phil Rudd. And I talked to Phil Rudd about it and I told him that I go, you know, Phil Rudd's one of the greatest drummers of all time. I, I think probably the greatest because of his feel and everything. And the way I know is whenever we do the Bon Scott tribute and you have a bunch of drummers sit in, they're all like, I got this, man. And then you go, what the fuck? How, how do you do this? What's the feel? What the, this guy's God, you know, yeah. all the drummers are just trying to figure it out, you know, and you can tell you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you're trying to find that feel right now. You're trying to get that fucking, that groove, that swing, you know? And, uh, some people are born with that, you know, some people it's like crowd work, you know, when you're riffing crowd work and you're fucking seamless and it's going good. And then another guy goes, I can do crowd work. And they get up there and they go, 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 go and it's all clunky. And I'll tell you right off the bat, I know full well, I shouldn't be doing crowd. Like when I see somebody riffing with the crowd, I'm like, okay, you have your fun. Cause when I get up there, it's there's that, that ain't going to be it. Cause I can't do that. They, yeah. I, I fucking, I suck at crowd work, but I, I look at comedy uh, the same way as I look at the grateful dead. Cause I love the dead now, of course. Um, but if I can do it in a dead fashion of jamming, it's, there's no better comedy to me. So I got the bits here. So the dead, they've got the tunes here. And then over here, I've got a little crowd work and then I've also got riffing. And when those are fucking mixing through, there's no better set on the planet. And when you get confused where you're at and shit, it's more dangerous than ever. You're like, did I do this joke already? Oh, dude, I'm fucked. Multiple shows in a night with the same, at the same club when like oh, yeah. show three, you're like, dude, did I already tell all these jokes? Am I? Yeah. But, um, I, I've always, I've always felt, um, I heard, um, at Brody Stevens Memorial at the store, um, Stephen Randolph said, uh, Brody's, comedy he told Brody his comedy was a lot like the Grateful Dead about how he never really knew what was going to happen it was all kind of spontaneous but like what you said the dead have their songs they yep. have this collection of tunes and they get up there and they and like they might not know what they're going to play but it's going to be from this collection of tunes and then then they might pop in something they just played the other day and then they might you know what I mean and then yeah. there's the the in-between and drums and space and the fucking how long each song goes I always look at my, my sets like I might be telling the same jokes from one show to the next, but I'm never going to tell them the same way. Exactly. But there's going to be stuff in there that's dissimilar, but there's yeah. always going to be words that are different, uh, a glance, a point, a look, something that happens generated from the audience because you're in a live situation and ignoring that is insane. So you yeah. can't like, so you have to, 
you know, um, that was the bird, uh, bird advice to me. Always constantly try to get a new tag on. You know what I mean? And that's, I mean, look, it's, it's, um, that's good advice, dude, because then you're going to eventually get to one that is either like, that's it. The joke is finished. There it is. Or it'll lead you to uh, something else. It's like, it, it's wise. That's good advice. Burr fucking knows what he's talking about. I suppose. I guess he. I guess we can give yeah. Bill Burr the benefit of the doubt when it comes to stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I always liked, uh, you know, one of my favorites on the planet is Norm Macdonald, and I always felt he felt he was dangerous as fuck because he would just get up there, and you're like, is this material or yeah. is this his? crazy brain you know what and i mean that's, that's a skill too when you that when you question that you're like is this is this guy actually just fucking shooting shit out of his ass or is this yeah pre, predetermined i fucking love him man you know yeah. i remember one day he was at the store and he was doing a bit about apples you know uh what's the one apple that's like juicy or they had to like there's an apple that has like, you know, well, you know, Oh, honey crisp or something. Something like, like delicious or whatever. Oh what, what, yes. Delicious apples. Yeah. 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 And he's like, you can't just, you can't, you can't just call yourself delicious. Not everyone. You're saying everyone, you know, though he's getting into this whole thing. And I was like, this is fucking so goddamn funny. And I'm in the back laughing and he got off and I go, dude, that was amazing. He goes, yeah. Tell those guys in there. <laughs> Again, always thinking like we bought, oh, I didn't do that well. I didn't do as well as I wanted. It's, you know, fucking great. That, that never goes away. You're talking to Norm McDonald. He's like, God, yeah, might not. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Doesn't go away. Doesn't go. I'm, I'm always constantly like, I got to get funnier. That's all I care about. Good. That's, that's a fine thing. To, I mean, look, you should care about your health and who, you know, all that other stuff, but yes, that's a, there ain't nothing fucking wrong with focusing on what you love doing and getting as good as you can at it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dean, thank you so much, man. This has been a lot of fun. Again, I think I could talk music with you all day. Oh, real quick. Did you, um, buy, you bought that day on the green t-shirt when you were there? Did you yeah. wear it to school the next day? 100% well, school. Uh, or whenever the next day of school. Yeah, I think was. school started like a week later. Cause I think that was like a Labor Day weekend or something. Um, and, uh, and then I wore, I wore, I wore the, I I told the story where I wore the shirt. My next show I went to was kiss dynasty. And I wore those two shirts until they kind of disintegrated. Yeah. They just wear away. And it's like the fabric just kind of just see through them. You know what I mean? You wouldn't want to use them as a COVID mask. (laughs) I turned mine into a blanket. I had mine sewn into a blanket. Oh, I've seen people that did that. It's cool. Yeah. It's a, it's really good. A couple hundred bucks and you take all the shirts that don't fit you and they, and you tell them if you want the back or the front. So like I had a couple of Van Halen tees that didn't fit a couple grateful dead tees that I bought in the early nineties. that didn't fit that. Fuck it. They're a blanket now. So I don't have to like, get rid of the shirts and I love it. Oh, oh, Burr bought a real quick Burr bought a, uh, shirt from the, um, turbo tour. I believe it was priest. And he, he cut the sleeves off, but wrong. It's all, <laughs> it's all fucked up. So he took a picture of it to me uh, uh, recently and he emailed me over to me and he said, you think we could fix this somehow? And I was like, no. 
<laughs> no, we got to just frame it. Dude, That's it, was, it. Frame it. Yes. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? How did what, you ruin this shirt? Cut it down the sides and frame the front and the back. That's it. That's yeah. it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God damn it. That's really funny. Can we fix this? Ah, yeah. He was dead now. serious. He's well, like, because think- I'm sure he was like, dude, I'd love to fucking rock out this fucking Judas Priest t shirt yeah. now. I'll just find him another one on eBay. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, the original, you know? <laughs> it also doesn't have sleeves. Yeah. Oh, dude. All right. Well, Dean, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to plug? Anything you got coming up? I mean, besides your, uh, the grail podcast, I know. And then let there be talk, which is phenomenal. When is this out? We don't really know. Okay. Uh, it, it could be a couple weeks because we're, yeah, whatever. We're, then, uh, I got a brand new podcast called the grail and it basically, I interview, uh, people that make, you know, handmade stuff, guitars, cars, denim, boots, stereos, anything handmade, people working outside the box, creators, artists, you know, I've had painters on and, and I really love this podcast because I like to shine light on these people without them. We're all shopping in Walmarts and looking the same. So fuck all that. These guys, uh, in, uh, I've been interviewing them for nine years and I decided to give them their own show, uh, called the grail, meaning, you know, this week, this is the Holy grail. So I just had Jesse James on who's the Holy grail of, uh, custom made shoppers in my eyes. Uh, yeah. so it's, uh, on every Wednesday and it's on iTunes and YouTube channel, Dean Del Rey. Awesome. Awesome. So check that out. And then also real quick, this podcast started when Indy hit me up and we were, we were talking about doing something together. And then uh, when I came up with the idea, I remember, I, I, I'm sure this isn't your quote necessarily, but I remember seeing you post this. I equate it to you because you're the first person I ever saw say, uh, celebrate what's great, not what you hate. Yeah, promote and what's great, not promote, what you hate. Promote, that's what it is. Promote what's nah. great, not what you hate. And when I started thinking about this podcast, that kept coming up. I'm like... I don't, I've had podcasts where people sit around and complain about stuff or bitch about things or do, well, this is a, this is a, but I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to fucking shine light on things that I fucking love. And if no one else likes it, I don't care. But I, these are the things that matter to me and that make life more interesting. So when I saw your day on the green thing, I was like, why not have Dean on? Because this is sort of where I got the idea. So thank you. There was two uh, things that, that that really stuck with me. One was promote what's great, not what you hate. And that came from me uh, being stupid and just shitting on Justin Bieber as uh, easy target hack, sure. hacky jokes, you know, like it's fish, shooting fish in a barrel. I'm not supposed to like Justin Bieber. I'm He's 50. not for you. He's right, not making right. music for the 50 plus crowd. Right. So <laughs> someone, you know, as I was, you know, and then later he ended up at one of my shows and came backstage and said, God, I love that. He was joke. so nice. Yeah. Well, he was really cool. Also, he was like, I love that nuts to buds big. This is way back then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, man, you know, so that was one of them I learned. And then the other one, Sarah Silverman hit me really hard. And it goes to what we were talking about in the middle of the show. But it was stop bitching and be undeniable. And that one fucking knocked me right in the gut also. It's like, that is so true. And yeah, and and what does it matter to somebody if somebody else is making music they don't like? Like, I I heard a story about Lemmy being at the Rainbow and somebody coming up to him and in an attempt to start a conversation with probably the greatest fucking rock and roll front man, gritty motherfucker, whiskey drinking, sig smoker, he's like, start shitting on ABBA. 
Yeah. And, and Lemmy's like, how many fucking number one records have you put out guy? Yeah. It's yeah. like, dude, dude, if you don't like ABBA, figure out something else to listen to, but yeah. why walk around shitting on ABBA? What yeah. is that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny as a, like a joke punchline of it, but you know, then after a while when I was, you know, starting comedy and I was in that room of like, here comes the Nickelback punchline. Here comes the Nickelback punchline here. After a while, you're like, uh, yeah. and then you start learning, like, I don't want to be that guy. Let's get some original shit going here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd rather have people walking away from your shows thinking about what you said being funny rather than going, yeah, I don't like that band either. (laughs) I mean, I'll shit on stuff, but it's not, uh, it's more like, you know, gas station prices, uh, taxes, you know, that kind of shit. This is, this is an old, old bit of yours, but I think I still think it's funny because I, whenever I see amusement parks or anything, but you were like, uh, you said, uh, I don't care. I don't give a shit about same same sex couples. We need to worry about same clothes couples. Oh yeah. And I was like, dude, that is legit. <laughs> when I go to Great America or Six Flags, I'm like, what are these fucking morons dressed alike? <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. I love that, that bit. I love that yeah. bit. You know, because there's always in the crowd, people are like, fuck, I told you, <laughs> <laughs> we look good. When you say something and something, you can see somebody nudging their partner like, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, because I say, I say, I don't care about same-sex couples. You know what? I can't stand the same clothes couples. That's gay. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing gayer than two people wearing the same fucking thing at Disneyland. Stop doing that. There's kids at the Disneyland. They're going to think that's okay. How can I, how do I explain that to my kids? Oh. Oh man. Well, thank you, Dean. Again, thank you. Check out his podcast. Uh, let there be talk and the grail and keep your eyes out for, uh, whenever he's going to be in your neighborhood, because I guess is when we're all said and done with this pandemic, you're going to be back on the road pretty quick. Yep. Yeah. I've been out. I was out in December with Burr. We did 16 dates. That was pretty wild in Texas. Pretty interesting. It was cool. It was outdoors. Everybody was, uh, pretty cautious about what was going on and, uh, we were getting tested, you know, and, uh, and out rocking it, and uh, you could tell people need to laugh right now. Dude, now more than ever, I, I need live music so fucking bad. I, oh, man. I, I can't even see. And and just to be in a setting where I can stand in the back of a club and just fucking, you know, be a human, feel like a human being, I think. Cause I'm looking yep. forward. Absolutely. I miss you, dude. I haven't yeah, seen man. you in a year. Yeah, it's, it's fuck no shit, right? Yeah. Um, but. Soon, man, soon. And uh, thank you so much for doing this, dude. This was a really fun talk. And uh, I'll keep you in mind if we talk about music again. You got it, buddy. Thank you. Thanks, Dean. See you, man. Later. Later.